There was no fear in Star City, Arkansas. No murder. No killers. Until now. There is violence we've ever seen. What's the story on this Star City thing? You think it'd be a wild goose chase if you went down there? Welcome to Star City, boys! For Chief Dale Dixon, it's the chance of a lifetime. Follow me! After 10 years of busting people, toms, and stop sign runners, I'd kind of like to take a crack at the big time. These are dangerous people we're dealing with. Get your hands up! Last night, some folks killed a Texas State trooper. Looks like they're headed our way, boys. Welcome to 30 Years Later. Uh, I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. Uh, joined, uh, as always, I don't think there's been an episode we've done where I haven't been joined by you or you have not been joined by me, but Mr. Chris Chafin, say hi, Chris. Yeah, thank you, Ricky. There was that one episode where we lost all of your audio for some reason, and I just oh, made this right. very weird edited version of me and the guest where we cut you out <laughs> like completely. I think that's why I even sort of went down that route in the introduction because I it suddenly occurred to me that that could have been the case at some point, and I wanted <laughs> you to answer whether that was or not. Uh, we're very lucky to be joined today by uh, Mr. Matt Goldberg. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Now, um, Matt, we're having you on because you wrote a great essay about this movie we're going to be talking about this week, uh, One False Move for Collider.com, though now you're at TCM. That's correct, right? Yes, I'm the editorial manager for Turner Classic Movies. It's very nice. exciting. Um, so One False Move, released in uh, 1992, directed by Carl Franklin, written by Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Epperson. Uh, this is kind of Billy Bob Thornton's breakthrough prior to the sort of very mainstream breakthrough of Sling Blade. Um, and uh, it stars Billy Bob Thornton, Bill Paxton, Cinda Williams, Michael Beach, Earl Billings, and Jim Metzler. Um, this movie, I'm wondering when the first time you saw this movie was, because for me, this movie has always been, or since I saw it for the first time, a kind of weird, um, sort of like, it's not well known enough to not feel like it's anybody else's. So when you finally see it for the first time, you feel a little like, oh, this is mine. Like nobody <laughs> else knows how fucking great this movie is because it's like so low budget but then immediately it goes so hard and then the turn comes and it, you kind of want to run out and be like, everybody needs to see this movie. I can't believe it's not on more, you know, top 10 lists. I can't believe it's not more discussed. There's something so perfect and, and, and beautiful about it. That's how I felt the first time I watched it years ago. And ever since then, you know, I've seen it repeatedly and each time I view it, I, I love it even more and want to run out and talk to people about it. That's probably why I started a fucking podcast to talk about movies was <laughs> solely to get to this movie. Uncontrollably um, have this instinct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Matt, when is the, when did you first see this movie? I first saw this movie in college. I was taking a course about uh, crime films, specifically American crime cinema. So, you know, stuff like Bonnie and Clyde and, and this one came up and it, it stuck with me because it's, as you said, it's, it sort of sticks in your brain that way. It's, you know, we think of it as it's a film where, you know, like you said, it's Billy Bob Thornton before he was sort of a household name. Um, you do have, you know, Bill Paxton, who's this great sort of lead. And I think has never, never in his career, was fully respected for as good as he was. I think, you know, as a supporting player, people like, oh yeah, you know, we love him in Aliens and things like that. But, you know, the man could do really good dramatic work. And I think this is some of his, one of his finest performances. It's such a complicated character that is on the surface seems so simple and dumb. And then is so like, it get it's shaded and, and deepened so well over the course of what is a pretty tight movie, right? Well, that's yeah. kind of the secret weapon of the movie, right? It's like, not just his performance, but as you said, Chris, the way that it is consistently revealing and shading his character, because you don't expect him to be the central point of the movie, and you don't expect all of the re reveals to be about his secrets and, and, and his past. And when the movie shifts into that, it's, a pretty, it's pretty shocking, because it's late in the game for it to suddenly become that, even though it's set it up beautifully, it feels, it feels pretty earned. And I mean, especially watching it in 2022, it's like, 
Billy Bob Thornton is in the first scene as like a drug dealer or like a criminal, a serial killer, a robber, does all these terrible murders, gets in the getaway car. And you just kind of think, oh, well, this is a movie about Billy Bob Thornton being a robber and trying to get away and escape these drug dealers. And then, you know, immediately it cuts to Bill Paxton. And eventually, yeah, you realize he is the main character of the movie, which is is great. It's so well set up. I want to talk about that cut to him uh, in a minute because I love when they cut to him and what it says about his character and what what you th- what it seems like in that moment they're implying versus what later you realize they're actually implying with mm-hmm. that with that scene. Um, but I want to talk more, Matt, about you know your response to the film when 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 you first saw it in college. I mean, it sort of. I mean, it was one of those films where it's like it just kind of it's hard to explain. Like, it's not like, Oh, I, I, I didn't have that sort of like, I'll run out and tell everyone <laughs> thing that you had, but at the same time, it was a film I just couldn't shake. And especially, you know, as when I saw, I think, I guess it was, a, it was around the same time I first saw Carl Franklin's other early nineties noir devil in a blue dress, uh, that they just, then it sort of kind of completed a picture for me. And so those two films together, have always kind of paired well. And that's why I kind of wrote about them last year. I think what, one of the things that I get so excited about with this movie is that, you know, you see a movie like Mulholland Drive, or you see a movie that like really breaks the mold. And that's seems like what people are always talking about, but it's rare that you actually see a no for a movie that's no frills and really good. Like this doesn't try to do anything stylistically to, 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 to to break new ground in any way it just tells a story really fucking well and that seems to be even more i think of a rarity when it comes to movies that people talk about these days well and i to to your point i would i would slightly counter i think it sort of sucker punches you in a way in the sense that it does seem like it's no frills like it does seem like a sort of just a very straight crime thriller but i think what it's doing when it's talking about urban rural divides and race in America is sort of where the film really lands its punch in a way that no one else was doing. But because Franklin does it so matter of factly, the fact that the film doesn't call attention to itself in that way, sort of, it it makes it, it doesn't sort of leap out at you. It doesn't have that sort of like, Ooh, this is so like to a Mulholland drive, like, Oh, this is so weird. Or there's a really quotable scene. Like, Mm -hmm. no, it's, it's memorable in a way that we don't typically associate with memorable movies. Or if you think of like Fargo, which is definitely, I think you could, you could draw some comparisons between these two movies simply because I think they're probably both drawing from similar source material. Um, What, why people talk about Fargo so much more than this, I think is because it's, it's idiosyncratic. It's consistently kind of calling attention and mocking itself while playing in the sandbox of, of these kinds of stories. And I, I agree with you that the difference between this and, and most of the other ones is the, the racial component and how, how it, how it talks about it with, I, I think with such depth, but at the same time, it doesn't go into any kind of self-referential or, or air quote, place out of the sandbox of the crime movie it still tells a sort of no frills within within a crime story movie i, I kind of lost my train of thought well no i know I what, you mean, Ricky, what you're saying what you're saying is like it's not doing anything showy to be like this is like a noir but we've put this crazy twist on it like oh, the sequences are all out of order or you know right it's not like playing with it's parts of it or a dream or something it is just like it is a crime story and it's very I mean, I one of my favorite things about it is the way it sets up this collision, right, between the the bad guys and the cops, and it just the movie very capably just follows that thread until the collision happens, you know. But it is, I think, what you're saying too, Ricky, is like it shows what you can do within the confines of a genre like this without breaking all the conventions and throwing them out the window. That you can just tell a really exciting, engrossing, surprising, politically relevant story with great performances um, that does surprise you, but that still exists within the the noir, you know, detective movie crime thriller framework, uh, which is pretty interesting, you know, and like you're saying, not not that common these days. 
I just you just reminded me. This is uh, out of nowhere and tangential, <laughs> but this morning I was watching an interview, a Charlie Rose interview with uh, Oliver Stone, talking about natural born killers. God, of course and, you were. What were you up at like five a.m. doing this, Ricky? Like, <laughs> and he was, and and the way, and uh, you said genre, and in the interview, Oliver Stone says genre, Jean like 15 <laughs> times he keeps he keeps saying we were trying to work in this genre but in a different way uh really really funny stuff um, i mean honestly one of the wor- like i know everybody says noir but sometimes if you think about it too much you're like wait how am i saying noir am i saying it weird <laughs> i have a friend who says yeah. newer and i'm like newer newer yeah no it's noir i mean noir. even the way that it's it, like phonetically it's noir noir <laughs> I mean, noir like noir like that's no error. I mean, right. Yeah. I don't know. I've corrected him on it sometimes. And then I was like, I guess I'm just being a dick. I should just stop correcting him. Matt, do you consider yourself an aficionado or a lover generally of, of noir, the noir genre? God. <laughs> the genre, genre of the noir. Are, the yeah. are so silent. It's hiding on the grassy knoll. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, no, I, I aficionado. I, I don't know if I could, I could lay claim to that, but noir is one of my favorite genres <laughs> uh i i do i love it because i feel i don't know i i have sort of a thing for these for for its kind of dark moral backbone where there is sort of an unforgiving punishment and not that not that i relish that in the real world but the fact that like there is the way especially in the 1940s and 50s the way noir was able to kind of cleverly get around the production code by essentially saying we are going to show some really depraved things, but the production code says people have to be punished. So the way we're going to do this is some poor schmo is going to fall into a life of crime and have his entire world turned upside down. And then we'll, because of the production code be punished. Um, And then it's okay to show these things because a bad person is doing them. Right. Or, or more, more is often the case, like a, a normal person or like a person that was good, you know, is turned evil, you know, and, and we're so, showing you the punishment that awaits you if you do. Such exactly. Yeah. And, but, and yet without the sort of moralistic confines, it's sort of, you know, in a weird way, it's kind of a breaking bad kind of thing where you sort of see this like in detour or double indemnity where, you know, I was just a regular guy, but it all fell apart for me as if I had no say in the matter. (laughs) And so I sort of like that sort of cosmic justice of it all. But then the way noir evolves along with the country, I think has really interesting things to say. I think you look at something like Chinatown and the way that encompasses, you know, even though it takes place in, uh, I think what 1940s, 1930s, 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very much a film of the 1970s, uh, yes. and 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 what and where America is at that point, and sort of this growing cynicism. And I think when you get to a film like uh, One False Move, it's really exploring race in a way that the noir genre had had not done before, that had had neglected one of the you know the sort of racial caste system of this country and, and, and kind of the original sin that has permeated its history. Well, what's interesting to me, I mean, talking along these lines about noirs that tackle race issues. I mean, I didn't actually see this movie until recently until I watched it for this show, (laughs) but I had seen devil in a blue dress, like in the nineties, like when it came out, basically like I got it from blockbuster at my grandma's house and we all watched it. So for my whole life, I've thought of that as like, one of the foundational like noir texts, you know, cause that really is. So that's like, is that the next movie Carl Franklin makes af- after this one? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that is such a, that is such a noir. Like it's, it's, you know, a private detective up against, you know, some kind of big faceless force that is, he's trying to bring down in the name of, you know, justice. Right. Except that like, it's all the, the protagonist is black instead of white. And like you wrote in your piece, he's dealing with all the things that are, you know, constraining him that, you know, Sam Spade doesn't have to deal with like being black in the 1940s. Um, So I've always thought of that as being like such a perfect noir. And I think watching this movie years later, you can kind of see how Carl Franklin is like testing things out and building things that like really are going to be really, really distilled in in the next movie. But but I like the way this movie is also sort of halfway there because it's still in the modern world. It's a lot nastier in in some ways than Devil in a Blue Dress. Like 
the opening scene, right? I mean, do we want to talk hard. about this? It goes it so goes hard. hard. Yeah. I thought I was going to watch like a child be disemboweled in this movie. And it didn't seem like out of bounds. Like it seemed like that might be what was going to happen. Um, yeah. I think, you know, that, that opening scene as brutal as it is, it's also incredibly clever because Franklin and the script are playing into our, sort of ingrained beliefs about city versus rural, that the city is a dangerous place. You know, they're in LA and, you know, you can just, in LA, you could just be partying with your friends when all of a sudden, you know, you are betrayed and someone kills you and all your friends. Like, it's just that brutal as, as part of a drug deal. It's very much sort of that kind of crime panic, cities are dangerous and then it's like, but then you go to Arkansas and here's the sheriff who's never had to draw his gun. He's a good homespun boy. And it's sort of playing on your preconceived notions in a way that it looks to upend as the film continues. Well, and I think it's playing with them in lots of ways. And one of them being like, right. So like you're saying at the very beginning, we're just seeing people in a house partying, having a good time. And then people, Billy Bob, Thornton and uh, Michael Beach like bust in and hold them up and and at first you're just thinking like oh these people are you know nice people they're being victimized by this guy but you know then then that is true but then also you learn like no they're the drug dealers you know somehow these people are drug dealers and then they're they're reaching another level drug dealer but throughout all these scenes all these people that are ostensibly you know drug dealers who even when they're being portrayed as victims in a movie are usually portrayed as being like sleazy and dangerous in some way. But all the drug dealers in this movie seem very nice and they're being like, you know, terrorized and murdered by, you know, these two psychopaths, which, which is interesting, like right on its face, like right from the beginning. Right. The second, the, the second house that they go to, which is who the supplier is, that's where they have a child and the person yeah. is married. And it's like this very like, uh, homey, well decorated home, and he's the guy's being so nice to the guy that is. Yeah. yeah, he's being, he's like, come in, oh come on, what can I get you? You know, he's being like sweet. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's sort of a self that's a conscious choice in the sense of like I not wanting to make like a war on drugs movie. Like, mm -hmm. well, you know, they dealt drugs and therefore they deserve to die, which is was which. I would still say today is not the most uncommon belief. Yeah. Right. It's not like Christian Slater going to Drexler's house in true romance, right? Where the guy is like an absolute dirtbag and is playing in this weird race character that is like on its own, like offensive enough to be shot. Like, right. Or like Alfred Molina in Boogie Nights, right? Like, like being absolutely insane and, it's all for I mean, he, but he didn't deserve to get to to get killed. He's just a guy that liked to smoke crack and like party. He's but like party. Like, he's not. He's not giving it out into the world. It's not his business. It's just what it's he like enjoys. a high stress environment. You know what I mean? They're setting off firecrackers and like. I mean being... the the real the real moral, moral question of that scene in Boogie Nights is how old is Cosmo, the Chinese firecracker? <laughs> yes, <drawer>? yes. That's <laughs> always been the big moral question of that scene. <laughs> I mean, I thought he's supposed to be like fifteen. Like I've that's what yeah. I was my I was assuming my entire life. Um, One thing that I love uh, about the opening of the movie, and it's something that I think uh, I thought of this while you were talking about the Hayes Code and the creation of noir in the fifties, and sort of how they could do these um, sort of dirty, tell these dirty stories, is to have them punished. And by the time you get to the nineties, we get the flip, which is that we can have the bad guys be the heroes of the movie or the centerpieces of the movie. And it almost feels like you're going to do that with one false move, or at least it is sort of predating the Tarantinos and a lot of the other people who are about to make movies for the next like 10 years where the hitmen or the gangsters are the heroes of, of the movie and they're yeah. or slaughtering a, people all around. Yeah. You know? Or it'd be you a continuation take... of like something like, like point blank, you know, yeah. where like, you know, it's like, yeah, he's a bad guy, but he's he, there. He's there's worse people in the world. Right. Or like way of the gun or some, something like that. But way of the gun is also like Neo Tarantino in a lot it's of such ways. Such a weird movie for Chris. Like for like now we associate Christopher McQuarrie with like, like, Oh yeah. He's like this, like, you know, making the mission impossible movies, but like way of the gun is I'm going to, and it's so weird too, because it's, it's like he had done, he had real usual suspects, which again is like, I, I consider noir. And it's a brilliant script. I just, I don't know. Way of the Gun is, is a film that perplexes me. I rewatched Way of the Gun sometime during the pandemic and I was as well perplexed. I was like, uh, 
didn't really think the jokes landed that well. And then I was also shocked that there's a, I feel like a two hour second act that is just people plotting the last 10 minutes of the movie. And it's scene after scene of people talking about what they're going to do in the last 10 minutes of the movie. And you're just thinking, Jesus Christ, just fucking do it. All right. Just get there. I don't care who is double crossing who at this point, you're all going to get shot. I can tell. Um, but there's something there's as much as the, we know who the bad guys are in this movie, it does feel kind of new to be really following the killers for, for this period, for, for this long of a period of time throughout the movie, you know, they are on a cross country road trip. They do kill a cop and we do have to sort of see what they're afraid of and what their personalities are like and what the, what the dynamic is between the three people who have just, brutally massacred oh my six people i mean it, it, like the the because the, they're the, like begging for their lives the um michael beach has this video playing they've been taking of them dancing he's left it on so they can watch themselves having fun while they're hogtied and it's it's still playing as yeah michael beach's them. character character pluto is just like unhinged psychopath just like unapologetic in every way uh which is fun to watch but it's also brutal well, it's is really he, supposed to who, be. It, I, I like the di- I like the juxtaposition between the two separate psychopaths, right? right like yeah. Michael Beach is the calm, collected yes, psychopath, the, extremely yeah, intelligent, sort of cinematic. Psychopath. He's like yeah, a, and and Billy like Bob sadistic. is like yeah. Billy Bob is like what a criminal usually is, yeah. which is just like a fucking idiot, An who idiot dirtbag. Yeah. yeah, with like no moral compass whatsoever. And he's just like scared all the time. And the way he handles being scared is to kill people so they can go away and not hurt him, you know? But that's actually one of the things I love about the way the violence is done in this movie, not just the opening scene, but all throughout whenever you're with the the criminals is like, it seems possible that they're not going to do it. Like up until the second it happens, you're thinking like, maybe it's not going to happen. And then it does happen, which makes it so much have such um, like more of an impact and and be more upsetting. I think, especially in the opening scene where there's all these people and they're murdering all of them. With each new one, you're kind of like, well, maybe this one they're not going to kill for some reason. And then they do play with that because then they you assume they have killed this child, which they they it turns out they haven't. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then when we. Bill Paxton, yeah, we keep talking about the dramatic performance that he delivers, but like it before it turns into something dramatic, which is around, around the time he hears the LA cops making fun of him, he's extremely funny. Like it's yeah. another brilliant twist in the movie, which I, I hesitate to even use the word twist because twist sort of implies that there's some sort of big reveal but all that it is is that he's a goof and you're kind of laughing at him like the la detectives are laughing at him but then when you see him hearing them laugh at him you're suddenly deeply on his side and then the movie starts all of a sudden revealing his improprieties as a police officer and so it's a real to to use like a cliche term it's a really smart kind of save the cat moment for this character because suddenly you're on his side and you feel for him and they're like, well, actually, you know, he's been, um, you know, he fathered a baby with an underage black woman that he totally exploited as, a, as the sheriff of the town about six years ago. He's not a great guy. And yeah. And I, to me, like that is that is the entire moment the film turns on, because without that, it's just very much like city bad, rural good. You know, yeah, he's a goof, but he means well, and he's gonna be like heroic. And, and he's like, like a no. super cop, like more. He seems like a doofus, but actually, he's a super cop. But he's not. Yeah. yeah, he's a good guy, and it's gonna use these sort of down home, you know, middle America values to save us from the evil city dwellers. And it's like, no, he is also part of the problem. And in fact, he is his evil is more insidious because it's not out in the open. It cloaks itself in both being like in both I'm the sheriff. So he's a position of, of authority, but also this sort of disarming, like, Oh, he just doesn't know any better. He thinks he could make it in LA as a cop. And you know, he's simple. And therefore, because he is simple, he is good. And it's like, no, he's actually got quite a lot of baggage that he is. His privilege is that he doesn't have to live with it or consider it. Whereas Lila does. Lila has to, he can just like pretend it never happened. You know, right. Exactly. But going back to that first scene of him, that's what I, after having seen the movie a couple of times, you realize that that opening scene with him where we cut from the killers 
massacring everybody to his Bill Paxson's current eight-year-old child crying, him picking him and his wife picking her up out of bed and scooping them back, you know, into their bed so she can go to sleep, and him shutting off the light for everyone to go to sleep. We see his hand reach for the light, and then the camera pans up to his face, and he's clearly lost in thought. And the implication upon first watching it is that maybe he knows something about what's going on in LA. Why is this guy lost in thought? But then you realize, having seen the movie, it's really smart. He's lost because he's thinking about this child that he's fathered. He's thinking about, like, he has guilt all the time. Every time he probably picks his child up or looks at her, he feels guilty about this 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 one that he left behind. It's really smart. And I think it's, I especially think it's smart because revealing something that melodramatic that late into the movie is extremely hard to do and you could see most movies failing in attempting to do that you would roll your eyes or you'd be like come on like a little much guys this feels like a fucking soap opera but this movie sets it up really and they really well they're not just this they seed it a couple times basically where like before you even know who this kid is you see him driving down the street and he just happens to see him getting picked up from school or something and it just cuts to him and he looks so devastated and you as a first-time viewer you have no idea what's going on but you just it tells you oh he has some kind of connection you're at first you're not even sure if it's to this kid specifically or you're like maybe it's just making him think about innocent people he needs to protect or something you know and then they do a, something like that again and by this point you're kind of keying in and you're like oh this must be his kid and then finally they come out in the open and, and say it and not just that it's his kid but the implication is very heavy although not explicitly said that you know he arrested her mom for shoplifting and we hear him say like oh i decided she seemed like a good person and i was gonna let her off but it's like it's probably like he made her have sex with him in order to not arrest her I mean, that was what I took away from it, right? Yeah, and then no, they maybe had some kind of little relationship for a little bit after that, but not really. And it, it does, you know, the thing is, it's sort of almost the, the details of it are irrelevant because all we know is that she was underage. Right. And so, and he was an authority figure. And so like, you know, her her ability to consent was non-existent <laughs> right, in yeah, that exactly. thing. And and to me, so, so Lila, you know, and again, like he gets to sort of go on with his life and Lila has to sort of, you know, live with the fallout of all of it yeah and i mean this is so this is another and it's also because of their races right because he's white and she's black and he's the he's a cop and she's a criminal so it's he's has this very protected position but i mean we've been talking about this all during the episode but this definitely to me fits in this genre we've been doing lately ricky of like 90s racially aware movies just this very particular way they had of addressing race in the 90s where it's just so matter of fact but in another way like very deep you know were our three movies in a row white men can't jump deep cover and now this yeah yeah exactly it's like all we're doing now pretty good it's like such an interesting 90s thing that i we were always talking about how they do not treat race in this way anymore where you just would have a character go like what i'm black so i don't matter to you you know, which is the kind of thing people say to each other, but it, it, it's just not handled in that way where it's like a real world issue that real people are dealing with in a way where it's like, it's part of the tapestry of their lives, but not the whole, their whole identity, but it informs so much about who they are, you know? Well, I mean, this movie even gives you a scene where Bill Paxton uses the N word right in front of, a uh, uh, the African-American police officer. I thought that scene was so interesting too, because he says this white trash and these n-words and he doesn't think he said anything wrong because to him those are like equal level insults like he doesn't think that it's just like prima facie offensive to this black person that he's having dinner with which again is a really interesting nuanced way of portraying a southern sheriff who would use the n-word around people you know like oh he just means like you know and it's a his wife his wife even says to the other white cop you know I apologize for him uh, that he just grew up talking that way. It doesn't mean the same thing to him as it does yeah. to you guys. I, I apologize. And the cop says, I, I, I think the, I, I don't think it was, he was take, he took offense to it. I wouldn't worry about it. You yeah, know? Which is so interesting. Again, very different from how this scene would go if it was in a movie today, I think, you know? Yeah. But, but you, you also have the scene, I mean, and it's not Bill Paxton. You also have the scene with, 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 um, Billy Bob and with um, what's what's the other killer's name? Mike. Well, the character's name is Pluto, but the actor is Michael Beach. 
Yeah. Right, Michael Beach or Pluto and Ray, their first scene outside of the kill- killing people where they're in the hotel room and Billy Bob says something like, you look like a piece of crap. <laughs> oh, he says, you <laughs> brown turd, is what he says. <laughs> and the guy and the, and the the guy attacks him. So it's interesting to juxtapose like where... Um, sort of where racial slurs live emotionally with 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 one with one type of character and an, and, a, and another type of character i think can or i just like, say quickly as an aside just talking about michael beach like he he is giving a very physical performance in this movie and he is stacked he's in he's he's supposed to be a genius but he's also muscular as shit michael beach has been on the tv show swat for like since 2017 if you go to his imdb page it's all pictures of him looking like super jacked super attractive and wearing a police uniform which is really funny to look up after watching him in in this movie apparently that's what he's been doing for like 10 years basically he's wearing uh he's stacked but he's also wearing pants that i'm pretty sure are pulled up to his nipples (laughs) at certain points he likes comes out of the car and it's like whoa here's this badass we just saw cold-bloodedly stab a woman in the stunt like in 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 the like organs in the side and he's wearing pants that are jacked up to his chest he looks like bill Hader's impression of clint eastwood at certain points in his wardrobe i feel like i'm always the shallow one that talks about the clothes but michael beach's pluto's wardrobe is fucking sick in this movie he's got these great circular glasses there's one shot of him where they're like at a gas station where yeah he's got his pants up to his nipples his waist is so tiny and he's got these pleated pants on and he's got a giant like purple silk shirt tucked into the pants. And I was, I was like, way this is mo- a fucking look. I love this so much. I was way more into Billy Bob Thornton's like redneck bought suits in LA look. Like <laughs> his, his suits were pretty fucking hilarious. Those blazers like oh my God. clearly like just moved to LA and went vintage shopping. <laughs> got these horrific 80s suits. And he's like, well, I got to look. All these people look fancy. I got to get some fancy clothes. You know, it definitely um, has a sense of, like he shoplifted a banana republic. And like, right. <laughs> uh, should we do some questions? Yeah, let's do the questions. Um, so Matt, you know, every episode we end with uh, a couple of questions. Uh, the first one is really easy. It's just, what was your favorite part of the movie? And I can, can I spoil the movie? Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 I think we, I think we did. We talked about the baby, which is like the biggest spoiler for the movie. Um, and when I say favorite, it's not like I enjoyed this, but to me, it's the moment that sticks with me. It's that Lila gets shot in the head. Oh, and yeah. I think to me, that is just, it's so, Sicko. Yeah, Sicko. yeah, disgusting. No, it's, <laughs> it's so chilling because you just, again, we you know we talked earlier about like, you know, you don't, you know, you think you might avoid in this film, you think you might avoid the violence until the last possible moment. Yeah. And the way Franklin shoots it, it's not like, oh, she gets shot in the stomach and clenches over. She gets shot in the head and her <laughs> eyes are open when she dies. Like it's brutal. Like, and it's yeah. sort of like this tragic end to someone you feel like never had much of a say in her own life. It's just, it's to me, it's the final, even though like, and it's an accident criminal, too. It's not, he wasn't shooting at her. Yeah. He wasn't know. shooting but at her. She's still, ki- she's still killed by an, another, another white lover. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like again, her, the, the amount of say that she's had in her own life has just felt consistently tragic. And I think that for me is the final sort of gut punch. A very really matter of fact. It's so like, interesting too, because what she's doing in that moment is she's trying to stop uh, Bill Paxton from shooting Billy Bob Thornton. Just kind of, again, not as a premeditated thing, but she just sees him about to shoot him and just goes, no, and pushes him, which is, you know, interesting given that all that's happened in the movie that, you know, her final act is trying to save Billy Bob Thornton's life. And then he, of course, accidentally shoots her in the head. It's kind of like the themes of the movie all like in that right. five seconds, you know? I'll go one spoiler further and say that my favorite moment of the movie is actually a couple minutes later when Bill Paxton is uh, on the ground with his um, estranged son who he's asking to comfort him while, while he, while he uh, lays on the ground injured. And what I love about that moment is the fucking movie just rolls the credits. I know. (laughs) Like it doesn't, it, it doesn't cut to like a month, later yeah, and like he's, he's in the around. hospital or like yeah, yeah, right. or he died it's like no he's, we don't know he's told the truth to his wife or something and he has a relationship with this boy now it's like i take that moment of the movie to be like in his final moments he like connected with this boy right but i'm i take it as he dies i mean he moment. certainly they have 
done makeup on him where he looks like all the blood has left his body. He looks like really, really pale. But I do think there's a, I mean, and I agree he probably dies, but I think there's a, a reading of it where he doesn't, because like you were talking about the moral code, Matt, and his sin is, of course, not having a relationship with this with this boy. And he's, he's laying there on the ground. He seems to be dead. I thought he was dead. The boy comes over and says, hey, mister, are you dead? And Bill Paxton, in a really good line reading, goes like, ugh, not quite. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's yeah, he's literally not quite dead. But it's also maybe him saying, like, maybe there's some possibility he could change. And then he's having a he's having a real connection with this boy and they're talking. He's like, come here, come here. I can't see you. Come on, come on, come on. See, I, I kind of view a different view that scene differently. Cause I, again, I think his sin is not just abandoning his child, but a, you know, his treatment of Lila and everything, you know, not, you know, just everything he did to her and that the film is denying, like he is reaching out for some sort of closure. And because the film just ends, he right. and the viewer are denied that closure. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, so for me, favorite parts, I mean, I have a couple, just a couple of things we haven't talked about, really, if I'm being honest, is what I'm saying. I mean, one of them I, I was kind of talking about, but I, whenever you watch a, a movie about cops and killers from the 90s, especially because we haven't quite gotten to this Tarantino moment, there's always a sort of, a certain laziness, I think, where the movie, a movies from the early 90s don't necessarily, they want you to take it as a given that the cops should be stopping the killers, you know, and they're not necessarily doing a lot of work to make you as a viewer feel it's necessary. What I liked was the way this movie started with this killing, which is so brutal, like Michael Hanka levels of like upsetting murder violence and then setting up the, like they might be coming to this little town where this nice cop is. It makes you feel like, Oh, these awful people are coming. Like, I hope they can, I hope they're going to be okay. I hope they're able to stop them on, on the like scale of nineties police movies. I was like, this is actually a really good setup that makes you feel like police work is doing something semi-positive for the world rather than just like expecting you to accept that like the cops are the good guys you know i i thought that was really well set up um another thing i really like about the movie is just um so we haven't talked about this too much but this movie was written by billy bob thornton and his writing partner uh tom epperson right who were kind of big screenwriters at the time who took lots of meetings all over hollywood they wrote a couple of movies together um, and like you were saying, Ricky, this is Billy Bob's big breakout. But what I kept thinking the entire movie is this is the part that Billy Bob Thornton wrote for himself. And this is how he <laughs> wanted to look. And this is the, these are the things he wanted to be doing in like his basically his first major movie. And I was like, that's so interesting. It's first of all, it's so fucking weird. Second of all, it shows such a high level of self-knowledge and like unselfconsciousness that I think is pretty rare, especially at the time. Like I, I was very impressed by that because he looks like absolute shit and he's an idiot and he's reprehensible. The, it is, yeah. It is strange that he's only like, at, you know, even as the screenwriter is like, you know what? I'm going to write myself to type. Cause like, he's kind of like the same kind of dirtbag in tombstone where everyone right. kicks the shit out of him. Are we sure that he didn't write Bill Paxton for himself? Bill Paxton part for himself though. And, <laughs> and they're, they're like, no, and they're, should play. they're like, you, sorry, Billy, like we can maybe cast you as Ray, but we have to put a name as the main, as the, as our, as the main character here. And he's like this part. Oh, no way. He's <laughs> like, shit, I'll, I'll play the shit out of that part. Give me Ray. Yeah. Okay, great. I'll do it. I'll, I'll you know, whatever it takes for the movie to get made, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um. So the next question that we ask is, um, you know, this movie, uh came out 30 years ago um that's the name of the podcast <laughs> and uh when we started the podcast you know we weren't really thinking ahead too much and we didn't realize that everything that we talked about for 10 years if we did it for 10 years would take place in the 90s so it begs the question what's the most 90s aspect of this movie for you i think you guys already touched on it the fashion choices that <laughs> that especially ray makes uh but ray yeah ray and pluto those are some very 90s fashion choices no i amazing amazing pants and glasses all over this movie yeah no i love it i loved it and it was inspirational this is shit that's super hot right now like you could dress like pluto and walk to uh herbert von king park that's near my house and you would you would look like a million goddamn dollars <laughs> it's really good i'm gonna i'm i'm gonna say the casting and by that i mean um everybody in the movie with the exception of bill paxton was not a face 
a rec- a really recognizable face at that time. I mean, I think if you try to put a movie together like this now, and even if it's going to be low budget, everybody in that cast is going to be recognizable or known in no, some totally. way. That's totally you know, correct. it's going to be like, oh, at the very least, that's that guy who's done six seasons of that show, right? It's not going to be like random random tv actors it's just not it's just not going to happen every the entire thing's going to be filled out by like people who could possibly get it financed <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i mean that is really interesting and all the performances are great and you buy into the world of the movie so much more because a lot of them i, I mean didn't necessarily go on to have huge careers so even watching it now it's like it's fantastic it's very engrossing and um Sorry, I got so distracted because my family just got home. I was like terrified somebody was walking in the room, <laughs> but it didn't happen. You know, I think, and I, that's not to say that these actors are not recognizable if you are probably like working in movies or if like, oh, sure, yeah, you're really paying attention. But I, I, I do think like if I were, if this were made now, it would be like a Wes Anderson fucking cast. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, and this kind of, I mean, to me, the like i was saying like what kind of movie even would this be now and i think it would be something like like the it came out a couple of years ago this netflix movie called the devil all the time which is like oh, this God. kind of rural crime thriller um but it has tom holland and robert pattinson and exactly Jason the cast Clark, is stacked like it's a stack it's not a particularly good movie but it's a stacked cast yeah, and what, it's more. I mean, side note: what happened with that movie? I watched it's so it. So bad. I, it's so. And bad. I just sat there thinking, like, you couldn't cut thirty minutes. Like, what's going on with this movie? It's just. It, it's it's, it's, it's such so a horribly weird, paced. It's horribly paced, and it's also just sort of like, it, it's this sort of like, ah, uh, people are depraved, and it's. I don't know. I also to the point where it's like, it so relishes its own depravity that it lacks any sort of semblance of humanity. I mean, to me, I totally agree. And I also think it just smacks of like, like you're saying, one of the side effects of when everybody in the cast is a name is like, the movie seems really under-directed to me. Like, I think the actors were in control of the scenes and not the director. And every scene you're in just feels like, okay, this is a 25-year-old actor who wants to take a huge swing at doing something. And there's nobody on set to tell them to stop or tone it down. And maybe even they're telling them to go bigger. I don't know. But it's like, it doesn't work for the movie. It's just like off-putting and it's, odd. It's a movie where, you know, spoiler alert, in the first 20 minutes, Bill Skarsgård crucifies a dog in a <laughs> state of religious furor. And like, it's that kind of movie. And you're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so this is what we're sitting with. It's fucking ridiculous. Very film school. I would normally know. love that. I would normally be fully on board mm. with something like that. But uh, I, I kind of agree with Chris in that movie where it feels like, every actor like the in editing they didn't want to piss off any of the big name actors that got involved so like nothing got cut right everything exactly. that everybody did made it into well, it's the also, they didn't you know, even do another take where they weren't doing it so fucking crazy you know they were just like okay yeah great thank you thank you bill well it's also the netflix of it all netflix is like eh, give us content and we can sell this because right. it has a bunch of names if like, it has names on of, the poster that's yeah all it doesn't have about. a lot of it doesn't smack of a lot of oversight period <laughs> right there was no development period and there was no post period where like anybody was giving notes that could help with the yeah. with the movie um, um so for me my 90s thing i'll just be real quick because it's not a great answer but it's like it's one of these things where it's a movie where you can sense how long ago the nineties were like, it's kind of, cause they're so uh, such a part of pop culture still. It's easy. You think of you know, friends and Seinfeld and stuff, but like it was 30 years ago. And like the, what we think of as the long ago past wasn't that distant at that point. And not just when they're in Arkansas, but for lots of the movie, you get a sense of like, Oh yeah. Like, the whole fucking world was completely different back at this time. You know, it, it, it was a long time ago and things were very different and, and strange. And I like it as a dispatch from that kind of like nineties that could have gone a different way that where it was still kind of like the long seventies or something, you know, I thought that was interesting. Um, the last question we ask is always kind of the tricky one, but it's like, what have we grown out of? Which is means basically just what's something that's in this movie or that it reminds you of a, a, in society that you just is no longer a part of the world for good or for bad. The thing that jumps out at me is something kind of surrounding the release of the film itself, which is that the, is that one false move was originally slated to go direct to video. 
at a time in the nineties when like direct to video was like, Oh, this is trash. You know, nowadays if something goes like direct to streaming or whatever, it's like, well, that's just what Netflix is spending $200 million on. You know, it's like, it doesn't, you know, we have a completely different distribution system, but if you were not being released in theaters, you did not make a quote unquote real movie. Mm-hmm. But this film, I believe, I, I don't know if it played at a festival or, or if it's just early screenings, but basically word of mouth around this film rallied it to a theatrical release. Uh, I think Gene Siskel put it on his top 10 films that year. Uh, and this notion that a small but devoted, you know, band of uh you know, film people that are like, oh, I like the thing. I like this would change its distribution hmm. uh, is just, I to me, I think I can't fathom that happening today. I can't fathom, you know, uh, anyone saying, oh, this is so good. Please don't, you know, bury it. Um, because, I And mean, of course, I don't think that can work now. You know, I think the counter to that is, well, we have social media. If enough people like something on yeah, social the media. The Snyder Cut, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we, you can't bury it if enough people talk about it on social media. I have, I have really high hopes that this is actually going to change. Yeah, you think people in are going to stop listening to landscape. people? Yeah. No, that, 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 that the straight-to-streaming model is going to, is, go, is going to stand. I have a oh, feeling yeah. that even Netflix might be trying to push their movies into theatrical release before going straight to streaming. I, it, I, well, it's a tough, it's tough to say because I think, I think the problem is, is that the ease of streaming has opened a door that makes theatrical a lot harder. Like, right. Like there was a tweet yesterday sort of bemoaning uh, and not even bemoaning, just observing that all these theaters are playing the new Dr. Strange. And the reason that they're playing Doctor Strange on all of their screens is it's the most reliable bet. Whereas 30 years ago, the multiplex had a greater amount of diversity because that was where you saw movies. Now theaters have to compete with streaming. Basically, it's one thing for Netflix to be like, well, we hope that we can start showing some of our movies in theaters. But it's another to say, will the audience say, yes, I will leave my home and pay $20 to see this film in public where I could stay home and watch a movie to a service I'm already subscribed to. That to me is the challenge. I I agree. It's a, it's a huge challenge, but I also think none of these companies are making any fucking money. Well, exactly. This is what I was going to say. So they're trying to find new revenue models. And the only person who I think is actually pushing for the original revenue model and is right is Tom fucking Cruise. Who's telling (laughs) Paramount, fuck off. We're going to do mission impossible in theaters for six months. It's going to make a lot of money. I bet this, I bet this is going to really pay off this bet. Um, and the same thing with Top Gun Maverick, yeah. but I feel like, you know, I was just looking at images from that Rousseau Brothers Netflix movie that's coming and that would do really that would do really well in in theaters. Well, and when it comes to the Doctor Strange thing being the safe bet, you're totally right. The thing is is that it's an on-demand culture, right? So nobody wants to go to the movie theater and be like, "Oh, the thing that I came here is sold out for is sold out. I'll check out something different." They're just not going to go. Right. Well, and the other half of it is, is, you know, when we talk about Dr. Strange or, or, or Top Gun Maverick, we're talking about crowd pleasers. We're talking about yes. big films yeah. that use the whole screen that give you that big screen experience. And the question is, okay, people will come out for that. Would people come out for, let's say Roma, you know, right. is that a film that like Netflix will back it? but would people go see it in a theater? Now, for me, I'm encouraged that the, the success of something like Everything Everywhere All at Once, mm-hmm. which has shown serious legs, and it's not a blockbuster. It has, you know, it's a very weird movie, but people are going to see it's it. It's also and a so crowd-pleasing movie. Can I, it's a crowd-pleasing movie, too. Can I be a... I just... I haven't had the chance to do this, and I'm only going to do it on our podcast because I feel like it has less viewers than my Twitter handle, <laughs> sure. but uh, okay, I want to be a... I, I have to be a brat about everything everywhere all at once it's a fucking children's movie it's it is ratatouille it does not show serious movie engagement from serious moviegoers it's great that audiences are going to see it it's great that any movie makes money it's great that any movie that throws that much spaghetti at the wall is finding an audience good for them those guys are extremely talented but it is a comic book movie in its own way and the actual story 
like underneath the whole movie, which gets put on pause 20 minutes into the fucking movie and then tries to pick itself back up again in the last 10. It's so aggravating. The is a Disney movie. It's Coda. It's just, you know, is, is this woman going to accept her daughter? I don't know. We'll no, see. I'm, I'm sure she will. That's not the movie. I'm sorry. I disagree. It's not, it's <laughs> I haven't not a seen it movie. yet. I haven't seen it yet. So it's I not a, I, I, I would argue basically the film's point is it's, it's basically existential dread. Essentially, if we are small and we already like, even if there weren't a multiverse, we would feel that life is essentially meaningless. What, how do we ascribe meaning to our lives if all we're doing is laundry and taxes? Is that all that our life is? What do we choose to, to make important? And the multiverse aspect of that, as silly and weird as it is, is trying to show like even within all possible worlds where you could even be a rock with googly eyes or whatever, you know, do, do, do your actions have meaning? And to me, that's sort of the competing yin, yin and yang, quite literally, of the film. I mean, if the bagel is, you know, the black hole of nothingness, then the googly eye is the white sort of, where do we ascribe meaning? So to me, I actually think the film is is pretty well crafted and, and quite insightful. Can I say as somebody who has not seen the movie, those two metaphors are insane exactly <laughs> and the sure film is insane in movie, but, it, but it, it, it it works i mean to me and honestly again i think it has something sort of it's that sort of i think the the daniels you see this in their previous film swiss army man as well is that for them they look at existential dread and feel that the way it must be greeted is with weirdness and compassion and i find that sort of uh uplifting I, I I agree with that. I, honestly, I, I hate that I don't like their movies. <laughs> That's fine. Really, they're not for, I, they ain't for everyone. <laughs> no, because I really, because I, I, I hate that I don't like them because I really want to be, have uh, like full-throated support of, of the work that they're, that they're doing. You know, I just get a little like, you know, I, I I'm a, you know, Todd Salons hasn't made a film in like 10 fucking years. And that drives, that drives me insane. And like it, for everything everywhere all at once to be the movie that like is going to save the art house. I'm like, well then we're just going to get a bunch of multiverse, like comic book style movies in the art house. Now is that I, all people I don't are going to go see? I don't think it's that. I think it's, I mean, I think it opens the door for more weird stuff. I don't think that a bunch of indie filmmakers are going to be like, now it's time I've got to make my multiverse movie. Um, but I, I mean, to me, I don't I think know, can... man. I mean, it could yeah, be, you know, it could. Because it's like with Do- saying, Doctor it's Strange like... is about to make two billion dollars, and this movie's making forty million. Taking in the comic house. book themes, but treating them a little bit more seriously, and looking at them through an artistic, emotional lens. I mean, the, you know, we're going on twenty years of comic book movies being the dominant mode of cinema, so it's like inevitable that they are going to become the art house mode of cinema too, especially with the success of a movie like this. Um, Whereas one false move would fall on debt would easily fall on death. I mean, this would be a Netflix. It would be a Netflix original. Well, And, and know, to me, yeah. it's like one false move just wouldn't, you know, to your point, first off, we'd have to have a stacked cast to even get made. I also feel like looking at one false move, it wouldn't even get to be a movie. It would have to be like a six episode oh, limited oh, series, God, yeah. prestige oh. stack. Be like cast. six more fucking B and C plots. that are completely right. It's like, we have to like, most... we have to like, we're going to look at this week. We're going to look at Lila's past and then we're going to look at oh, yeah, Ray's right. past. And what, it's a whole be episode. Whole that's tapestry. like the waitress at the diners whole day, you right. know, exactly. It's going to be a whole thing. And, and, and with the and, most like on the nose, heavy handed, like approach to discussing or having, conversations about race with these characters yeah, just like right. like eye rolling consistently Wait, because your grandfather like, was it. in the Ku Klux Klan yeah exactly yeah. yeah that's how I feel if this film were made today that's what it would be it would be a six episode very important limited series you know in- important in the sense that it 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 acts with great import it would be uh, like like like, like Tarantino country and even then it probably wouldn't get made because it's not based on a true story <laughs> Right. There's no existing IP. There's no IP. It. Yeah. I don't know. I guess the, cl- yeah, the closest thing you could get is sort of like a mayor of East town kind of thing. Where- yeah. Do you ever see, you know that, you know that scene in, in Whit Stillman's metropolitan where Tom is talking about, um, he's talking about Jane Austen and he's, he's, he's consistently quoting the critics and their feelings about Jane Austen. And the girl's like, well, what do you feel about Jane Austen? He's like, Oh, I don't read fiction. I can just never, never get over the fact that none of it ever really happened. (laughs) I, I feel like with the exception of like 
comic book movies that is most audiences right now and people treat comic book movies like there is some kind of underlying truth there's all this debate about like canon or whatever it's like people consume those movies also through a lens of like what is real in this movie because i think that with comic book movies and i'm getting really tangential right now we should probably stop soon but so i'll just say very quickly with comic book movies an audience can go in and be like oh what did they do with this character i already know about right let's see the twist or the take that they had on it and then with true stories it's like oh what did they do with the pam and tommy thing i want to see their take on the pam and tommy thing there's it feels like often and i know everything everywhere all at once is really an exception to this and that's why i should be supporting it full-throatedly is that nobody wants to just go see a movie about a guy or about a woman or about a person that's made up that's totally fictional and we just told the story because it's fun to tell stories and see and sit through fucking movies it's it's hard to sort of tell people like yes you'll what you'll get out of this is thematic richness and they're like but i want to know like it it's hard to it's hard to sort of use that as a selling point and I think it always has been, but it's definitely, yeah, I think to your point, it's also just, it's easier to hang stories on other things. I mean, everyone is trying to mitigate risk. So when it's like, well, based on a true story, okay, I can point to everyone, like people know who Pamela Anderson is, people from the 90s, the nostalgia boom, you know, or I guess that story, that story take place in the 2000s. I don't forget when, but uh, it's 90s, like 90s, 90s. Yeah, yeah, like 90s. But Benny, it was like, I reckon, I think a lot of people like they just, I want to recognize the thing. And I think, you know, from their entertainment, they want to recognize the thing. And again, taking chances on things. I I think to me where I get my disconnect is like people like I can't take a chance on a two hour movie. I will take a chance on an eight hour series or a 12 hour. And I love it when people tell that to me is where I fall off. People who so hard to be like. Sorry, who wouldn't, Chris, go ahead. Who wouldn't take the chance on a two and a half hour movie or telling you like, oh, it gets good at like episode four. And you're right. like, why am I going to watch three hours of something bad to get to something I maybe won't even like? Like, just and watch no, a fucking no, movie. Like, no offense to people who make TV, but even if it gets good at episode four, even if it started good at episode one, six episodes of something, even at the end, two seasons, whatever, is nowhere near as fulfilling a feeling as watching a great hour and a half movie. There is like a full dinner that comes with an hour and a half movie that you get to walk away from and feel like you actually sat with something. Television, the model itself is just trying to push more into it and push itself to keep going. So it often feels pretty lazy at the end of it. Like I'll finish a six episode miniseries, probably the best of them and be like, that was fine. Yeah. I think okay. the issue I think the issue is is that sort of the the technology and the the platform is demanding television where it doesn't necessarily need to in the sense of like we're seeing these television shows that probably would have worked as movies but you know a streamer needs to keep you occupied needs to keep you plugged into the platform for longer. So they're like, yeah, it could be a 2-hour movie but like we need it to be an 8-episode series because it's better for someone to spend 8 hours on yeah. the platform than 2 hours. I mean, this is why it would be great if we had more of these like anthology series. Like that's a good model. Like something like Small Axe, right? Like what is that? It's just a bunch of movies that are but, like I mean, yeah, I love Small Axe and yet people lost their minds like is it television? Is it movies? And I'm like, come on, man. it's it's movies. They're just movies that share a same theme. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, we should wrap up soon. I'll just say really simply my thing you don't see anymore mm-hmm. is like there was the scene where um, Billy Bob or uh, Bill Paxton describes this ranch they're going to go to as being like out over a rickety bridge. It's the only way to get there. And then later on, there's a scene on the rickety bridge, which is on top of a lake. There's like fall trees behind them. And it's shot from kind of far away as everybody's walking back. And it's just a, it's not an action sequence. It's just a talking sequence. And I just thought there's no way in a million years this scene would ever happen like this today. They would not go to this real location. They wouldn't bother to find a fucking bridge over a lake. And if you did, you wouldn't waste it on just a conversation. This would be like the final battle would take place on the bridge because it would be the only out of doors shot you did the whole movie, you know? (laughs) So like the fact that they just like did something really simple outside that was pretty to look at because it went in with the script. I was like, yeah, no, this would be on a green screen. They wouldn't, this wouldn't happen this way in a million years. Um, it, the themes of this movie would be much more heavy handed and mm, much more blunt yeah. than I think they are handled in this movie. And they are fairly blunt in this movie. <laughs> it's not like this movie's particularly subtle. It's just done. It's just done well and handled with depth. Uh, I, I think that if this were to be made now, um, 
I would probably be rolling my eyes uh, a, a hmm. lot more because yeah. it'd be shooting for the shooting for the cheap seats a lot more. Well, Ricky, I interrupted you last time, but Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure to talk with you. Um, Thanks, Matt. Is there, how pleasure. can people find you Should, on the internet? Um, I mean, I, I, I'm on Twitter at Matt Goldberg. Mm-hmm. If you want to, if you want to <laughs> tell me my opinions are right bad. Now. Great. Um, um, and uh, yeah, it's, and please, you know, check out all the great work everyone we're, everyone is doing at Turner Classic Movies, uh, tcm.com. Hell yeah. An amazing place to work. My mother thanks you. This is literally the only thing she consumes. And she's, yeah, thank you very much for the work that you're doing. Um, it's great to have you. Yeah, great to talk to you, Ricky. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye, guys.